<clears throat> so we are in the middle of this Advent journey. We're calling it the Advent Conspiracy. Last week we asked you to consider your spiritual posture. So how's it, how are you doing? How is your spiritual posture? Is Advent in the season of Advent helping you to hear God's voice? Are you more attuned to him or not? Are all the activities and all the festivities allowing you to draw closer to family, to have better and deeper conversations with people around you, to uh, deepen your relationships with one another? Or are you just trying to make it through <laughs> to Christmas? The question is, are you skipping or are you slouching toward Bethlehem? Well, if you want to, things to change at all, you're going to have to rebel a little bit. Now, when I say that, maybe some of you are a little bit uncomfortable. This is a good group of Midwestern, sort of slightly Lutheran covenanters, right? You don't maybe like that word, rebel. But if you look closely at the Christmas story that we read every single year, you'll realize that it is exactly rebellion that each of the characters in this story expresses and exercises. From the Magi to Mary, each of these characters resists the control of the empire through their own rebellion. So a little context uh, to that. <clears throat> if you look at the story, so Luke chapter 2, we read this story every Christmas, right? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Caesar, what do you know about Caesar? He's a pretty interesting guy, to say the least. Octavian is actually his name. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And when Julius dies, uh, he, uh, Octavian says, well, my dad, he was actually not human. He was a god, which makes Octavian the son of a god. And so begins a systematic campaign to convince the empire, the entire empire, of his deity. So in 27 BC, the Senate decides to honor him with a name, Augustus, which is just really a title of divinity and majesty. But during that time, there were poets and there were um, uh, and oracles uh, like Virgil, who began to, began to write and suggest that something extraordinary was about to happen. That there would be one that would come to mediate between heaven and earth, that would bring about universal peace, and that the whole human condition would change. Well, Augustus was reading this too, and he said, well, that's me. That's me, of course, that I am going to bring about universal peace. And so statues begin to pop up everywhere around the empire, in temples, and a whole, whole priesthood began to surround him, charged with the worship of Caesar. So when Rome conquered a village, they put up a monument to Caesar that would bring Caesar glory, and people began to worship him. And the structures in which they worshipped were called ecclesias. Ecclesias. Even their, their, even their coinage spoke to this issue as well. There were phrases on the coins that said things like, salvation is to be found in none other than Augustus. Or there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved but Augustus. Or Caesar is Lord. Even organized a celebration around his birth, and they call it the 12 days of Advent. 12 days of Advent. 
So you fast forward a whole bunch of decades, um, and you find that this whole culture is on a collision course with a bunch of followers of a Jewish rabbi in Palestine who proclaimed he was crucified as Lord, that he, was, that he rose again from the dead and now lives in the lives of believers. They even started writing letters to all the followers all around the empire saying that they've got 500 followers in Jerusalem who proclaim that Jesus the Christ was their risen Lord. And now when they're getting together in worship, the places where they worship, they call those ecclesias. Ecclesias. And the leader of the church, eventually the leader of the church, Peter, goes on trial. And in Acts chapter 4, he says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus, not Caesar, not Caesar. <clears throat> and something begins to happen. Followers of Jesus begin to rebel against Rome. They defy Caesar himself in open and rebellious ways, injecting the name of Jesus into, into their daily lives and even into the political systems and the political propaganda. So here's the thing. It was okay if you worshipped another god. It was fine. There were many gods, according to Rome, but it was about what the Christians wouldn't do. They would not bow their knee to Caesar. As Francis Schaeffer once said, let us not forget why the Christians were killed. They weren't killed because they worshipped Jesus. Nobody cared who worshipped whom, so long as the worshipper didn't disrupt the unity of the state that was centered on the formal worship of Caesar. The reason Christians were killed was because they were rebels. They were rebels. They worshipped Jesus as God, and they worshipped the, the infinite personal God only. Only. Caesars could not tolerate this worshipping the one and only God. It was counted as treason. And so this, all of this, is the culture around which the Christmas story emerged. So we're going to take a look at that. So Jim read the words that uh, Gabriel gave to Mary. See if you've heard any of these words before. <clears throat> the angel comes to Mary and says, <clears throat> The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will conceive and give birth to a child. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne over his father, no, David. <laughs> And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. These are charged, volatile words in the midst of the culture in which they are spoken. And then a little bit after that, we didn't read these verses, Mary sings a song. It is a rebellion song. It is a song of rebellion. Remember what she sings? She sings things like this. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. The he that she's talking about is not Caesar. But God, people get killed in that culture for words like this. Well, how does this all apply to us? And how does this all apply to Christmas? Well, I don't need to tell you that in our day and age, there are a lot of Caesars out there. You don't need me to identify them. But during Advent, Caesar is certainly overspending and materialism. 
and consuming and busyness, gods that we bow our worth to in the midst of the cultural kingdom that we live in the midst of. <clears throat> now remember, if going back to the ancient culture, in those days it was okay to worship any number of gods as long as you participated in everything else. So does that translate to our modern day? Oh, you bet it does. You bet it does. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, worship and sing your carols and, and pray to God and, and give him your worth and, and spend time in worship and go to church and, and do all of that. But make sure that you're also at the office Christmas party and make sure that you bake the 2,000 plus Christmas cookies that you do every year. And make sure that you stay up until 2 in the morning decorating your house and getting everything and everything possible thing ready. And make sure that you get down to the Home Depot or Menards to get that gift card for Uncle Cleo, even though you haven't seen him in three years. I could go on and on and on. But maybe this year, saying yes to Jesus might mean rebelling a little bit. It might mean saying no Caesar, or in our case, saying no to more, to more. I want to suggest to you today that rebelling in the midst of our Advent conspiracy may take on the form of spending less. I invite you to spend less. Now, <clears throat> you might ask, uh, well, my daughter asked me yesterday, spend less what, Dad? Spend less time, spend less money, spend less than your neighbor, spend less than you spent last year, spend less than the average American that will spend something like a thousand plus dollars on Christmas gifts this year. What? Well, however you answer that question, um, and I think those are very, very good questions to ask. However you answer the question, spending less is about rebelling against excess. Balancing our desires with our needs the needs that we find in our community, and the needs that we see in the rest of the world. At least spending less is about giving differently, giving with more compassion and, and more care. Thinking about how our giving proclaims the gift of Jesus or what the message is behind our gift, whatever it is that we are giving. I think the Apostle Paul can help us in this endeavor Give us some suggestions about how we might think about spending less, how we might think about our giving. I mean, he was, an, he was a true rebel. He rebelled against uh, culture. He re get rebelled against religious posers and the like. So he is sitting in jail, and probably in Rome, and he writes this letter back to the church in Philippi, thanking them in chapter 4 for the gift that they have given to him while he is there. In verse 12 and 13, he writes that he understands what it means um, to be content in every circumstances, in, every, in all seasons, in plenty and in want, in, in the times when he had a lot and the times that were just thin. And he understands how to be content because he says Christ is his strength. He says, I don't need your gifts, but he's thankful for them because they're giving points to something and I think that's where we can find our suggestions um, to how we go about our giving this year. The first one is this. What if we gave gifts to 
that allowed proximity to people. So this is what the Philippian church did. They allowed their gifts to, to, to allow them to, in, in a way, walk with Paul. He's there in prison. He is, he is uh, dependent on everybody else to, to care for him. I think one of the most important components of discipleship is being proximate to one another. That's why in our mission statement here at our church, we've talked about it in this way. We want to connect to God and connect to one another and connect to the world. And think about it. You can't connect to someone by being at a distance from them. Think about a plug and a socket. You have to, you have to get close. You have to get real. You have to get next to and, and, and involved in someone's life. What if our gifts allow that kind of proximity to people? The question is, what allows us to be together? That's a question not only as we give gifts to our families, but as we think about those who are in need. That's exactly what happened with Paul and the Philippians. I think answering that question, what will allow us to be together, will transform our church, particularly as we ask that, that, that question about how we get together with each other, but even more so, how we get proximate to those who are in need, a different culture, those who are in deep need, those who are released from jail, those who are struggling with anxiety, those who are struggling with addiction. <clears throat> How might our gifts allow us proximity to folks like that? So maybe our gifts this year aren't so much about the ones that we wrap, but even more so about the ones that we do and perform that require sacrifice of time and sweat equity. I was so, ex I was so pleased to see so many people from First Covenant Church represented in the move that happened over at the care clinic. They, you've been part of, of, of this move uh, for months, painting and helping uh, do, do uh, small pieces of work to get the new space ready. And then even over the last week, people came in droves to help and to care for. That's what it means to give in a way that allows proximity. The second thing I think Paul teaches us through the Philippian church is this. To give gifts that provide for needs. It's exactly what uh, the Philippian church did. And you get the sense as he writes this of his, uh, of his sense of gratitude. He's in prison. He's dependent on others. And the gifts that the Philippian church brought were tailor-made for him and his situation. Maybe you have sensed the beauty that comes with giving or even receiving a gift that actually met a need. A sense of joy and gratefulness in the one who receives that gift becomes obvious. And you leave knowing that you have genuinely blessed someone else. And I think you genuinely understand the joy that Christ gets in blessing us. Give gifts that provide for needs. And lastly, give gifts that are pleasing to God. This is what Paul says of their gifts, that they have actually not just given to him, but their gifts were pleasing to God. See, we don't want to get to January and start opening our bills and say, I'm sure glad Jesus was born. Right? So what does it mean to honor God with our giving? How might our giving lead to more time in worship? More time to consider what God in Christ has done for us. How might we honor God's mission to the broken, the poor, and the lonely and such? 
prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 2, says this. Why spend money on what is not bread? Meaning the things that don't feed us. They're just empty. And labor on what does not satisfy. He says, listen. Listen to me. This is, these are God's words. Listen to me and eat what is good. Meaning the things that come from the Lord. The things that are of God. And you will delight in, this, in the richness of this food. This food which only God can give. <clears throat> so what if you give in a way that blesses somebody? Or when you give in a way that blesses somebody, it blesses God as well. And you'll find, as Paul writes to the Philippians, that God has also blessed you in the process. I want to close with an example that uh, I heard just recently. You, uh, you've, you heard and you know about all of the wildfires that happened out in California. Well, there's a story that's been circulating for the last couple of weeks that after uh, the small town of Paradise, California, was nearly wiped out by wildfires, the local high school girls' volleyball team in Paradise was still determined to play in their semifinal championship game that Saturday, just a couple of days after uh, the fire. And so despite having no uniforms or equip equipment, after having evacuated quickly from their town with only clothes on their back, they still wanted to participate. Well. The team to, in the city to which they were going had a surprise for them. The team was from Forest Lake Christian High School in Auburn, and they were waiting with a big surprise for this volleyball team from uh, Paradise. Within 24 hours, remember, this is only two days earlier uh, that this had happened. Within 24 hours, they had collected donations there in Auburn of six, $16,000. And when the girls from Paradise Academy showed up, they were greeted with new custom uniforms, knee pads, and socks, and a whole lot of love. And not only that, a $300 gift card was provided for each and every player, along with a truckload of supplies and, and toiletries and clothes and all of that for their families. And then, not only that, after the game, they were all invited to a banquet of warm food prepared by these Forest Lake families. Paradise coach Jason Iyer addressed the packed gymnasium filled with people who had never watched uh, this sport before but wanted to show support. He said, I've never been so overwhelmed by so many things. I would never have thought possible. And this is one of the most amazing things I could ever have thought would happen. I said, your community is awesome. And for this, we are ever, forever, grateful. As part of our Advent conspiracy, would you consider rebelling against the excess of the commercial part of the season by spending less, inviting questions about what that might mean for you, and giving in a way that allows proximity, that provides for needs, and pleases God? Doing so may not take down the whole pagan kingdom, but it will allow Christ to be smuggled into a dark world that very much needs to know the peace, the peace that only God.